We have an exciting partnership to announce before we get into today's Scuttlebutt. Scuttlebutt has been asked to join Reads Across America Radio, a 24-7 internet radio station where you can listen to veteran stories 24-7. Uh, you can find that on the iHeartRadio app. You can also find it on their website, readsacrossamerica.org. The Scuttlebutt will be featured Friday nights at 9 p.m. and Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. If you don't know anything about Reads Across America, they're an incredible organization, all dedicated to honoring veterans uh, and, and those who uh, gave all in service to our country. Check out the Scuttlebutt on their radio station and all the other programs that they have on their 24-7 radio station, again, on iHeartRadio app or readsacrossamerica.org. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of The Scuttlebutt. I'm your host, Sean Hall, Director of Programming with the Veterans Breakfast Club. We're a nonprofit in Western PA whose mission is to create communities of listening around veterans and their stories to connect, educate, heal, and inspire. I, myself, am not a veteran. I'm a civilian, and The Scuttlebutt Podcast is where I get to learn about military culture from a civilian perspective. If you want to find out more about VBC, please visit us on our website, www.veteransbreakfastclub.com. Org on there. You can become a member. You can sign up for our free quarterly magazine. Uh, you can check out our Veterans History Project and find out about all the in-person and online events that we have coming up, as well as all of our past events online and all of the Scuttlebutt episodes. So please visit us on the website. Now, as for today's Scuttlebutt, it's a very, very good conversation with uh, Marine Corps veteran Stu Blackwell. Stu is also the host of the Warrior Legacy podcast. We decided to talk about Civ Mill Divide. Um, we've talked about that before here on the Scuttlebutt, but I don't know if we've ever really gotten into some nitty gritty stuff. And I think that Stu and I were able to have a very honest and poignant conversation between myself, civilian, and him, a veteran, uh, about the Civ Mill Divide, uh, questions that veterans have for civilians, maybe some questions that I myself would have for a veteran. Stu got the chance to ask me some very thought-provoking questions uh, that a veteran would ask a civilian. I found this conversation to be highly educational as I walked away feeling like we found some common ground on some issues. Um, of course, I don't speak for all civilians, um, but I'm speaking from my own personal history and my experiences over the last 20 years of the War on Terror. Um, again, uh, I hope that you enjoy this episode. Please like, share, subscribe, and ring the bell on YouTube so you're the first to know whenever we release new episodes. And if you have any comments or thoughts uh, about the conversation today, uh, please feel free to email me, Sean, S-H-A-U-N, at veteransbreakfastclub.org. I'd be very interested to hear uh, those thoughts. And if you have any ideas for future scuttlebutts or there's a part of military culture that you just would like to learn more about and have maybe see featured here on the Scuttlebutt, I'd love to hear from you. Thank you so much and enjoy the show. Uh, love to welcome Stu Blackwell here to the Scuttlebutt. Thank you, Stu, for taking the time to join me here. We have a lot to get into, not not least of which is your service and uh, your excellent podcast, the Warrior Legacy Podcast. Um, but you and I are going to talk a bit about military-civilian divide uh, for the Scuttlebutt audience who may be joining us for the first time. I am a civilian. I'm not a veteran. Stu, you are a veteran of the Marine Corps, um, but I'd love for you to introduce yourself. Welcome to the program. Yeah, hey, thanks for having me on, man. This is, uh, this is a great opportunity. Any chance that I get to discuss these types of issues, I really relish it uh, because it's not the type of typical everyday conversation that we have normally. And we can get into that a little bit more. Um, but uh, you mentioned it already. I served in the Marine Corps from 2007 to 2016, uh, so about nine years and five months or so. Um, I was an infantryman by trade the entire time and uh, had some interesting experiences, to say the least, uh, some painful experiences, some very, very joyous experiences, and uh, 
it was a great it's great overall uh, it shaped me into a better man awesome uh 2007 that's surge time around that correct yeah so iraq kind of um a little bit more on the de-escalation uh the battle of ramadi had just taken place i want to say um and we were looking towards afghanistan to renew the surge there mm -hmm. why did you decide on marines so i had an older brother that was a marine and uh you know i, I wasn't gonna let him outdo me and uh, if I was going to do this, I had made up my mind that I was going to go all in. There wasn't going to be any half measures or anything like that. College mm -hmm. just didn't really appeal to me. Um, I Part of me knew that I wasn't really responsible enough to make the right decisions. Uh, and uh, so I looked for something else, you know, and, and I craved I craved adventure. You know, I, mm -hmm. I craved something more than the typical model of life. And the Marine Corps offered that. So I signed my name. So it wasn't, I mean, him being Marine Corps, you couldn't say Army, you couldn't say Navy or Air Force. It had to be like, no, I'm going to do this. Yeah, yeah. And granted, he, him and my father were very supportive. If I had mm -hmm. done something like that, it's not like I would have been spurned as the black sheep of the family or anything, you know? Right, yeah. That that healthy competition between brothers. You know, he was a reservist, actually, too, at the time. So I was like, hey, I'm going to go active duty. I'm going to one-up you, bro. <laughs> nice. Um, but uh, he he went with me through the entire recruiting process, and my father did as well. So, which helped me out because there was no chance of any misinformation or me not understanding anything, you know. Mm -hmm. And my recruiters understood that. Uh, so it was all pretty straightforward. Um, we joke all the time about you know there being a a special place in hell reserved for him because he got promotion points um, for me signing up, yeah. you know. Right. So he's in Paris Island, one of the worst places on the planet. <laughs> so you came from a military family then? Um, I don't know if you can really say that. So okay. my paternal grandfather served on the USS Wisconsin in, uh, during the Korean War. Mm -hmm. um, but other than that, my brother was really it, you know? Interesting. Um, yeah, yeah. So why did he decide to join? Well, he, he was a football player growing up. Um, okay. He got a college to play at a, or he got a scholarship to play at a small college, mm -hmm. and uh, it just wasn't really for him anymore. You know that stage of his life had run his course, and so one of his best friends had joined as a reservist as well, and he kind of talked him into it, and he he loved it. You know, uh, the, the change was monumental. I got to go, I got to see him go from a diehard college athlete to a disciplined professional. You know, mm -hmm. and I remember seeing that shift and I went to Paris Island and I saw him graduate and everything. And that, uh, you know, I, I told uh, Brad the last interview that, uh, that that's a recruiting tool, really. That's all that it is. You know, mm -hmm. it got me, you know, yeah. they me, man, right hey, there. Yeah. <laughs> so. Oh, I find it so intriguing. I mean, obviously, I have two younger brothers. You know, we're very close. I would think if, you know, if I did something similar to that, they may be intrigued by, by it. But um, I, you know, it seems like you guys were, were so close that, you know, that's where it led. You said, okay, I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to follow in these sort of footsteps. Yep. Yep. We did. And I'm very fortunate to have that relationship. Um, mm -hmm. he, his development and his journey through life really did. It had a significant effect. You know, and when I saw that difference, when I saw that change, you know, uh, that's really what stuck out to me. 
And it made me think, okay, like this is an actual viable option. You know, Mm -hmm. athletics really aren't, I mean, I worked hard and I loved athletics. I wrestled all through high school. I played a little bit of football, but Mm -hmm. I didn't have the skills necessary to compete on the collegiate level for that. It wasn't an option. And then I thought about, well, do I really just want to, you know, chase girls and drink through school? And then I thought that's what Marines do. (laughs) I. I did plenty of that, man, but uh, that that built some bad habits that I had to deal with later on in life, you know, Um, but yeah, it's, it was a, it was the better option for me. Definitely. Did you, so you felt like that same change that your brother went through is the same similar change that you experienced as well. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. Now I may have not had the athletic success that he did, but I craved if nothing else, I wanted to know whether or not I could hack it, you know, that challenge that was there, because that's how the services were presented to me. It was a life of hardship, a life of struggle. It demanded a total commitment to you. College was just college. You could go and failed out. Well, guess what? You fail out, whatever happens all the time, man. You know, this, this life, if you choose it, it has much more dire consequences, but just like anything else, you get out of it what you put into it. Yeah. So if I commit to that, which is what they asked, and it was made very clear to me, that's what was required. Who knows where this could lead me in life? True. When uh, so 07, you go in. Uh, when were your deployments and where? Ooh. Uh, so the first one uh, was the 26th Marine Expeditionary Unit. It's like a like a quick reaction force. Uh, for a certain part of the world. Anytime you hear the, her, the term Mew or Marine Expeditionary Unit. So they uh, they take uh, an infantry unit, they put them on a ship and you go to different ports, some are for liberty, some are for training with foreign militaries and stuff. And if anything goes wrong in your part of the world, you respond to it, all right? Uh, at the time, I hated that because like we said, Iraq was still there and that's what I wanted, you know? Uh, you don't suffer and go through the type of training that we go through just to get on a ship and then get drunk in a foreign port, you know, right. yeah. that was disappointing. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, looking forward to it, to our next deployment, which was uh, Marja, Afghanistan. It was the tail end of Operation Mashtarik, which at the time was the largest operation in the Afghan campaign. That was in 2010. Mm-hmm. That was my first and only combat deployment. And uh, we can talk more about that if you like. Um, the After I came home from that, I reenlisted and I went to Fleet Anti-Terrorism Security Team, which still kind of falls under the infantry purview. Uh, everybody there, other than the non-commissioned officers, has an infantry MOS. Uh, but the mission changed a little bit. Mm-hmm. So Fast Company was solely reserved for reinforcing diplomatic outposts in distress, all right? So we launched over to uh, Manama, Bahrain, and from there, that was our jump-off point to the entire Central Command's area of operations. If anything went wrong at an embassy or, you know, a diplomatic outpost or something somewhere and they requested Marine support, it was going to be us, Um, which ended up happening, actually, uh, the same time that... uh, you know, the, the Benghazi incident was going down. The Yemeni embassy was uh, overrun by a riot and they requested our support. So we rapidly redeployed to Sana'a, Yemen and stayed there for a few months. Um, and then uh, I came back home 
and did another deployment back to Bahrain. Um, so that was my third in Fast Company. I forgot to mention the first one was to Guantanamo Bay. Mm -hmm. um, so there's there's Gitmo. There's two two deployments to Bahrain, and that was the time that uh, you know I I called my wife after I got there, and I was like, hey, you know what's going on? I'm here. I'm alive. At this point, it was it, it was a well coordinated drill. You know, she's a pro. She's done this four or five times, and she was like, uh, yeah, I'm pregnant. No, <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> So that's how I found out that I was going to be a dad. Awesome. Um, <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. Great. Uh, missed almost the entire pregnancy, came home, and about two months later, there he was. You know, I'm holding the mini-me in the hospital. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, how long did you get to be with him? I asked this question specifically because we recently had on two uh, veteran spouses who talked about uh, their husbands. They each had, you know, they each have multiple kids, but one of them, uh, had a child and two days after they had the child, he had to be deployed again. So he had like got to hold him for two days and then it's like out the door. That's rough. That's yeah. rough. Uh, so I was fortunate enough to where it just, you know, it fell on the back end of a deployment cycle. That's so good. we weren't set to deploy anywhere. And also my tenure in fast company was up. Mm -hmm. Um, my enlistment was up. So I applied for an extension and, um, I was able to go to second battalion, fifth Marines out in California. So I had a good, like five or six months or so, um, after he was born before we had to pick everything up mm -hmm. and move. Um, then we got to California and again, another stroke of luck. They weren't set to deploy for about another six or eight months or so. Yeah. Um, so I had some time, you That's know? Good. Yeah. Very lucky. Very lucky. Um, and why did you decide to re-up? Because, I mean, at that point, you just, you you know, you have your, your what is your firstborn? Yep. And uh, what kept you in the service? So the, the second, the second time around kind of goes into a little bit of detail from my Afghanistan deployment. Um, before that, you know, um, I had a very influential man in my life by the name of Zach Walters. Uh, he was my squad leader and he was one of those rare individuals that alters the trajectory of someone's life. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't know that at the time. I didn't understand that's what, we, what was going on, but it was. And he taught me a whole lot, a whole lot by his example, um, by his leadership, with his proficiency, the way that he instructed people, his emotional intelligence, things that you don't typically think about a knuckle dragging grunt, you know, mm -hmm. uh, this guy was it. He was dynamic in almost yeah. every sense of the word. And five days before we deployed, he's already over in Afghanistan on the advance party. And him and another squad leader from our company are killed by the same IED on the same patrol. So right before my first combat action, I found out that I'm going to be a squad leader. And that deployment was rough. It would have been rough regardless. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, it was kinetic fighting pretty much the entire time. Got a little quiet towards the end, but I had to kind of relearn everything. And a lot of the notions that I had about what a leader should be and about what was right were questioned very early and then shattered subsequently. You know, I came face to face with the fact that I was not the stud that I thought that I was. It was very humbling. Yeah. And there was a lot of growth that had to take place there. So on the back end of that deployment, um, I decided to go to Fast Company because that's where Zach came from. Mm -hmm. 
I wanted to find out where he got that X factor, you know, and, and I, I had to know one way or the other, if I could actually do this as a good leader, you know, yeah. not just somebody that relied on rank or position, if I could actually lead people. Mm-hmm. All right. And so that's why I chose to reenlist to go there. Um, it was that continuation of challenge, you know, and then on the next enlistment, when I went out to two five, it was the same thing, you know, that, that you hear about inner service rivalry. Well, the same thing exists within each service, you know? Yeah. So there's the East coast versus West coast, uh, I guess, grunt war, you could say mm-hmm. the terrain's very different. The mentality is very different and the training is very different in both places. So coming from North Carolina, where it's, it's all flat, the general consensus is, is that we're not as tough as West coast Marines that are out in the hills of California, right? right? So I'm like, okay, bet. Let's find out. Mm-hmm. What do I have to lose at this point, really? You know? Um, and so I was able to get out there and it turned out to be one of the best decisions that I made. I loved living the Marine Corps lifestyle in California. Not sure if I could tolerate it outside of the Marine Corps, but it was it was a great move, man. I, I got to meet a lot of really good people and work with some people that really helped shape me. And that was a very reflective time Hmm. uh, towards the end of my career that paved the way for the challenges that I would face after I got out. I want to get back to that reflective time and and what you were reflecting on. We'll get to that in just a minute. But um, so you re-upped after your first time, you re-upped twice after your time in Afghanistan. And then again, a little later after the birth of your firstborn. Um, Let's dive a little bit into Afghanistan, the combat. Um, Was combat what you expected? And can you tell me what went through your mind the first time you were shot at? Ooh, okay. Was it what I expected? Um, Yes and no. Uh, I attribute any preparation that I had to the fact that uh, we had Zach. And he did an an outstanding job of preparing us as best as he could because he thought outside the box. The good news for us was, especially in this situation, when none of us in the squad had any combat experience, mind you, we're all green at this point. Um, It wasn't like news that we were at war or anything. It had been going on for a long time, right? Yeah, 10 years. Yeah, about nine, 10 years at that point. Yeah. Yeah, right. Um, Yeah. As far as the first time that I got shot at. Now, again, you have to take into account the events that we've recounted, all right? So I've been in at this point since 2007. It is now 2010, okay? So I've been immersed in a complete and different culture than the rest of America and the rest of the services, okay? Mm -hmm. Each little occupational specialty group has their own culture, all right? It's like a patchwork of that put together. And in the infantry, um, you know, we valued lethality. You know, we valued example and selflessness, discipline, toughness, and proficiency. You know, we have these own set of values that drive that culture. Okay. Leave no man behind. And uh yes, you know, yeah. that's that's part of it. Response, um, yeah. But the main that's played out in a little bit of a different way, you know, and it's reflected in the way we train. So we train and we induce casualties during training, for example. Right. So you're doing an attack on a softball field because that's the only training site that you have during a typical workday when you're not in the field. Right. And, you know, whoever's running it like Zach would 
Zach would be like, okay, uh, team leader, your saw gunner just went down. He's dead. What do you do? Hmm. Well, instinctively, no man left behind. People are like, oh, I'm going to go take care of the casualty, right? Yeah. Five seconds later, he's like, no, your entire team just got wiped out by that same machine gunner. The best medicine for a casualty is to kill the threat as quickly and violently as humanly possible. Mm. Okay. One casualty is better than three or four, is it not? Yeah. So different culture yields a different mentality, yields a different set of tools that you use to solve problems. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. Um, and that's what we took into combat. The first time that we got shot at, given the fact that Zach had been killed, that had a profound effect on my mentality towards the war, towards the local populace. And, you know, another thing, too, it's funny, the way that these things are presented to people, you know, the the public opinion surrounding the war, what a politician says, what a general says. Once you get over there, man, like none of that means anything at all. It's not even in your mind. You know, like those people aren't there sharing in your hardship. They don't have any skin in the game. There's no consequences for them at all. Right. Why should we care about what they think? Mm-hmm. No, like, and we understood very quickly that while everybody else wanted to see us as nation builders or liberators, well, we just had a squad leader get killed. So clearly that's not what we're going to be doing over here. It ain't about that. And we were hungry for it, man. So you take that culture that values lethality and all those values, okay, and men that have been immersed in that for years, mm-hmm. and you kill one of them, what is the natural response for the rest that, that aren't dead? Revenge? Yes, absolutely, 100%. Mm-hmm. Now, I can't speak – I can't say that that's true for everybody. I know for a fact that it isn't. Right. For me, though, in that moment, that is what I felt. And that is what I wanted. All right. Now we didn't do anything wrong in the way that we went about it, you know, and our command knew it was going to happen. So they spoke to us about it. Yeah. They were, they had the foresight to to plant those seeds in our minds because we were going to be alone. And there was plenty of times where we literally could have gotten away with murder if we wanted to, Mm -hmm. but we didn't, we had that restraint. Okay. Um, so the first time that we got shot at having all of those things, uh, it was it was exhilarating. It was scary. Um, but there wasn't a, oh, my God, I hope I don't die right now moment. It was, okay, it's on. It's finally here. We've been through all of this shit, all of this trial, all of this struggle to finally get to this point. And it's real. It's not training anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, this is, to use a very poor sports analogy, like, this is the Super Bowl, you know? Except lives are on the line. Yes. With with moral consequence. Right. You know, this is what you this is the entire is the culmination of your purpose and everything that you have striven for for years now. Yeah. And we relished it. We took full advantage of it. Um now as time went on, that changed a little bit. And that's kind of funny how it works. So that that uh that fire and that um you know that desire to just get after it you know and be fearless about it um you start to realize over time that fate can only be tempted so much um you can only roll the dice so many times before it bites you in the ass um and yeah there was there was an element of that and that's how it kind of degraded i guess you could say by the time that we left the war i would think that i would relate that to the thought on the war sort of had shifted 
Um, but I, I, I want to bookmark this for a second uh, before we get to that idea, because I think there's an important idea here that I seem to be picking up on is that the you became a squad leader because Zach was killed. Yeah. How did your desire uh, for revenge in a way, how, did that affect your leadership in, in any way in the sense of, do you think you would have been a better leader had it not been the driving force of I want to, to avenge uh, Zach? No, no, I don't. Because initially, everybody had some element of that, okay. you know. Um, now, we were going to go about it the right way. And we right. talked about that. We're all on the same page. And we did that. But um, that kind of stayed with me, that lingered with me. And it did not with everybody else. At least not as strongly, you know. Well, you were you were so connected with how his leadership was. You like you mentioned that that you you really sort of it, it was a mentor. It was a you know Zach was such a mentor um, that I I can see that it would have stuck with you longer. Well, he was he was like that with everybody though. That's what made him so special. He made that. an impact on everyone. He was mm-hmm. that kind of rarity, you mm-hmm. know. Um, and different people handle things differently. I was a blunt instrument, okay? I had very little emotional intelligence, very little communication skills, okay? Um, I was more of a direct, like, issue the orders, carry out the orders type deal. Very robotic in my thinking, in my approach to a lot of things, Hmm. you know, Um, which is contrary to the way that Zach operated. He understood how to use that. Uh, which was part of the reason why the squad was so respected in the company. He understood our roles and how to task us appropriately. I, despite having seen him and observed him and worked with him, for some reason, didn't incorporate that into my repertoire of leadership tools. Which I find really interesting because you don't strike me, and you and I are pretty much sitting down for the first time here having uh, this conversation, is you don't strike me as somebody who is robotic that you have exceptional communication skills at this time. So I'm interested in finding out how that changed, how where that change came about um, it, down the line on the story or, or even now. So it started actually with Zach, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. Um, part of it was becoming well-read. Um, mm-hmm. But the process that you're talking about has taken years and years. It's <laughs> not something that came overnight, you know? And part of that's just because I'm exceptionally hard-headed is, you know, my wife likes to remind me all the time. It's often <laughs> um, but you know, he he assigned me a book called Gates of Fire by Stephen Pressfield earlier on. Mm-hmm. And I was pretty pissed about it at the time, you know, because I didn't want to read. I thought that was for people going to college. Um, little did I know that that was just one more way that he was going to alter my life. Yeah. Um, you know, that opened up a completely new world to me. And then also, uh, you know, we talk about dire consequences and some of the mistakes that I made when I communicated with those team leaders, when it became obvious that we were there for different reasons, you know, um, they had other things that they wanted to accomplish. They had their own views of the war and those views, that vision that each of us had, they did not marry up. They did not commingle very well at all. Yeah. Okay. Um, so on the back end of this deployment, there was no way for me to get around the leadership failures that I had tactically as a squad, when we were outside the wire and, you know, when it came time to fight or even when, when the base got hit, you know, no issues. People knew what they needed to do. I didn't have to tell everybody everything to do because 
because Zach had trained us so well and we had trained each other so <laughs> well that everybody knew what to do. Or at least they made a decision and the guy next to them was like, okay, he's doing that. So I'm going to do this to support him. Right. You know, there was cohesion there. Yeah. Right. Um, but the, the communication piece, the emotional intelligence piece, those were failures that I had to come face to face with, especially if I was going to reenlist. And that was really the driving force. Um, I felt that I had, I felt that I had more to offer in that department or at the very least I could grow and get better. Yep. And I was going to find out one way or the other sink or swim. But the one thing I wouldn't have to do, just like when I signed up and I was thinking about, huh, do I really want to go to war? Same thing. I will never have to wonder what if I'll know one way or the other, but I won't be carrying that baggage around for the rest of my life. I would say, you know, as we chatted briefly at the very intro here about like civ mill divide. And I, and I wonder about like, I bring it up because before we started recording, I, I mentioned that I had family over. I said, I'm going to talk with a combat veteran tomorrow on my podcast. And I'm interested to hear what you all would ask a combat veteran. If you were allowed to ask them anything, um, except that one question, which we all talked about on the scuttlebutt is pretty much you just don't really ask, have you killed anybody? Because we just don't ask that of veterans. But if you had the opportunity to talk with a combat veteran and ask them a question, what would you ask them? And their responses were very interesting because I would label them, having spent about three years working with veterans, I would label their responses as kind of vanilla. Um, just their responses were like, I don't know what I would ask them. I would ask them maybe what they carried with them from home if they could, or what they thought of the culture while they were over there. And those are interesting questions from probably the general public that you might meet uh, in line at the Starbucks. They ask you a question, they might say, well, what do you think of Afghanistan or the people, you know? But I think it comes down to a, a particular point that I'm trying to make here is that part of the civ mill divide, as we've talked, is, is sort of the, the miscommunication. And I think almost extension of that is sort of the misunderstanding uh, of each, each side. The weird thing is, is that combat veterans or veterans in general uh, were civilians at one time. Yeah. So they, you know, they they have that experience, whereas civilians never have had the military experience. They've never been through Paris Island. They, they don't know what it's like to um, be on a soccer field and trying to figure out what to do about, you know, a teammate that that's been dead or or in real combat situations having to deal with a casualty. But one word or phrase that, that I'm coming back to here from what you mentioned is lethality mm -hmm. and the desire to get at it. So I feel like from a civilian side aspect the misunderstanding or not misunderstanding but sort of the i'm not sure what word to use and maybe you can help me here is the idea of like i'm a civilian and i don't understand the mentality of wanting to be lethal or mm -hmm. the warrior aspect the there's the warrior culture in us and there are warriors among us in the in society that want to be a part of war and battles and combat and i think that that seems so foreign to many of us in in sort of a, a the civilian world of just like i wouldn't even know what to do with that and i don't know how to respond to it mm -hmm. okay so let's let, let's break that down in, into pieces there's a lot to unpack okay mm -hmm. um so let's see the the note of lethality all right um you think about it hmm the first thing that i would say is that 
your environment and the culture have a lot to play into that, right? Mm -hmm. um, think about how most of us are raised in America. You know, think about how you're taught to deal with, say, bullying in public schools and stuff, right? Go get a teacher, use verbal resolution, you know, do, do, do almost anything except what you probably should do, which is knock that kid out. Yeah. Right? Right. Okay. So you're raised in that mentality. You're immersed in that culture for 18 years, mm -hmm. right? And then you go to Paris Island or San Diego. Culture shock. Off oh, the chart. Definitely. Right? Okay. Then on top of that, once you get done with that, you if, if you're an infantryman like me, um, you go to SOI. Another culture shock because it gets more refined as you go on. So boot camp is actually the easiest thing that infantrymen do. It's the easiest thing, bar none. Okay. And then you go to SOI and it goes away from how to march, how to dress, how, customs and courtesies, how to address officers, how to be a general Marine. And it goes to shoot, move, communicate. Like this is your life. This is your bread and butter now. All right. Your sole purpose in life is to contribute to the team. If you're not doing that, you're kind of worthless, man, you know, right. and it sounds cruel and it sounds harsh, but again, consider the consequences. If Tom Brady loses a Super Bowl. He loses a Super Bowl, but his star wide receiver is not going to die on the field, you know, yeah. bar some sort of freak medical condition or something, which hopefully doesn't happen ever. But right. um, so the consequences, the culture, again, that has different values, all right? If you ask a civilian, what are the cultural values of American society? it's going to differ from every other single person. You could ask 50 Ooh. people and it'd all be kind of different. That's a good right? question. That's a really good question of like, what are the American... Because I, because it's like working with veterans, I always, I always say like, yeah, like war is a part of society. It's been around since the dawn of man. We have it and thus we have a military. We need it to protect. We need it to defend. All of that. We need it to attack when necessary, you know? Um, so I would put it it within that, that that answer answering that question personally that's what i would do right and you know you think about you know we were talking about how we're raised in schools and stuff and then you can take me as a prime example man like i didn't want the typical route in life it just yeah. didn't appeal to me man you know i, I wanted something more mm -hmm. and so i'm naturally i'm going to gravitate towards organizations like the marine corps you know or college athletics if i could have or something like that you know mm -hmm. um and that it, it, it's so different from everything else. But when you get there and you see it, it and it, it's hard, you know, and you see the development that takes place, the type of changes that have to happen in you in order for you to succeed in that environment. Once it happens, there's no turning back, man. Like you can't just, you can't just turn it off. Mm -hmm. you know? I, even guys that get out, you know, after four years or 40 years, it doesn't matter. They still can't completely get rid of that part of their lives. They can suppress it, you know, through various means, but you can never get rid of it. It's a part of you for life. And once you see that that is a possibility, once you see those changes, it creates an appetite for more. Action creates an appetite for more action. It's how we're built, man. This science, biology, nature, God, whatever you want to call it. We are designed, at least some part of us, is designed to be agile, lethal, mobile, and hostile. 
at times. How we as use humans, them, you mean as humans? Um, yes. Okay. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And since our society is so different from that, and since there's not really too many rites of passage for men anymore nowadays, there's the appeal right there. Yeah. I want to know what I'm truly capable of. I haven't really been challenged in high school or, or, or up until now, but now it's my choice. I want to find out what that life is like. Yeah. So there's the gravity. It's natural in a sense. And then the lifestyle itself, the values, overcoming challenges, the development aspect of it, the personal development spurs and stokes the fire a little bit. Gotcha. Okay. Mm -hmm. And lethality is just, I mean, that's the, that's the reality of the environment. I mean, you got to think about it, man. Like we're going to places to where traditional American values or concepts like diversity and inclusion and all those things, like they either have never existed there before, or they haven't existed there for some time. Yeah, especially Afghanistan, especially they're the just how women are treated in that society. I mean, that's that that's like the main theme you captured from the Taliban retaking Afghanistan was women will suffer. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, among other things, you know, it's you're exactly right about that, man. So, you know, we need a separate culture. We need a different culture, one that is practical based on the reality of the situation to prepare men to go into places like that and do what they need to do. So, I mean, there, there's the need and the justification for it as far as, as, as far as I see. Um, and I saw that really have a positive effect, not just on me, but almost everyone around me, mm -hmm. you know, um, without it, we'll end up feeling a lot more American body bags. I think. Did you feel that, uh, in talking about all the men around you, men and women around you in the Marine Corps, <clears throat> any of them like wash out in basic or this, they decided like, this isn't what I thought it was or what I expected it to be. And I, I don't think that I can be what they want me to be. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it happened real early on too, man, about halfway through, uh, or not halfway through. Well, yeah, maybe right before we went to the rifle range and recruit training on Paris Island, we had a kid become a conscientious objector, like overnight, you know, um, we hated him like really. Okay. Really? It took you this many months to decide that like, no, no, you knew full well what you were getting into when you came over here. It's required by law that recruiters brief you. You're going to have to handle weapons and not to mention you've had one in your hands for over a month and a half, bro. Like, really? Yeah. We know what you're trying to do, man. So we just wanted him gone. Uh, and he did go away. Uh, not sure what happened to him, but he went away, which was good. Um, you know, because it's, again, it goes back to that moral consequence, man. Like any form of, any form of excess, um, Descent. need to go away, you know, mm -hmm. like we call it trimming the fat. Right. Um, you want to be lean, you want to be mean, you want to be capable of doing what needs to be done, regardless of how ugly it is. And if anything's getting in the way of that, it's got to go. Well, and everybody that standard man like it's not like you don't have you know favorites here and there you know if you're the culture is such and the nature of the work is such that nobody can really hide their true colors for long there's some people that are kind of good at it for a little bit but eventually something's gonna happen and everybody around is gonna be like yep i know exactly who you are as a man all right so there's no there's no shield from it at all and it requires full commitment from people it, 
would you say that like the men growing up the boys growing up in afghanistan there is a rite of passage there in that culture like they still go through some level of rite of passage you know uh of defense of lethality of you know because it's just so different than what we experience here so as far as a specific rite of passage like in the terms that we view it you know like one event that's like hey you're from you know you are no longer a boy you are now a man i couldn't tell you about that what i can tell you is that again talking about completely differing cultures you know they grow up fighting um look at their history look at their lineage you know they've they're constantly at war and if it's not at war with an outside power then it's at war with each other Mm -hmm. you know that was one thing that really shocked me about their culture you know and and there's no at least where we were at in marja there was no concept of a greater afghanistan it wasn't a concern to the locals like they care about their farm you know their little farm at most they care about like their trot right but beyond that they don't have that concept of a singular united country like we do in america so that in itself us coming from the former them existing in the latter for thousands of years that's already a wall right there that you have to try and overcome and it's a significant one too right. um but lethality to them is i mean it, it, it's just like we experienced it's survivability your survivability depends on how lethal you can be how unforgiving you can be if you have to be mm-hmm. and it's it's weird to say this man and i know this is gonna this is gonna hit a nerve or two but like me coming just out of afghanistan i probably have more in common with the people that we were fighting against than i did most of the civilians in america at that that, point yeah and that's part of the that the sip mill divide that we we are going back to and highlighting in this episode is not only are you put into a culture the, the marine corps and that changes you significantly from just a regular average everyday civilian but yeah then you are in afghanistan for however long engrossed in fighting kinetic as you mentioned that changes you further so coming back and buying cereal at the grocery store is is I'm sure that is its own culture shock in the reverse. Um like, like seeing seeing what our everyday life is after being a part of something that significant, that uh uh scary, that uh energized, action oriented, it, it's it's gotta seem bland and and probably just doesn't really mean anything once you get back into regular civilian life. I don't know. Kind of. Yeah. In, in a sense now. And again, I can't speak for everybody else. This is right. where you start to get into the human element of things and yeah. people, people handle things differently, man. They really do. So I can only speak for me. Um, it, it, it wasn't as much of a shock as you would think, you know, like I was not the dude that freaked out when fireworks went off or, you know, when a dog barked or anything like that. Um, my wife said that I had a few, a, f- a few times where I woke up in the middle of the night. I don't remember it. Um, but then again, I was, I was, you know, I was drinking a lot during those days, uh, regrettably, but it's true. So, um, the main thing that you're talking about, I think is really like, I, I, I was excited and I was proud of what I had been a part of. I really was. 
And to me, like I had made the decision to reenlist. So I knew it wasn't going to be over. This was not it for me, Mm -hmm. you know, and I had a lot of work to do. Um, So the next challenge was on the horizon. And to me, it was just like, it was kind of looking around at, you know, the civilian world and just being like, yeah, I I still don't want to be a part of that. You know, it just, it doesn't really appeal to me, you know, but it wasn't so much of, you know, a, a fear-based time in my life, Mm -hmm. really. That wasn't the product. Um, Disappointment. Yeah. Over some of the, some of the, uh, some of the ways that I handled things that we spoke about earlier with the team leaders and with the squad and stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, That process of dealing with that took years. Um, But other than that, man, it was just looking forward to the next challenge and recognizing that that's still where I needed to be. Right. Was it, hard and is it still hard to live up to the ideal of what what zach had laid out before you was it hard uh yeah it was impossible man because uh i'm not zach and that was one of my problems in afghanistan i kept trying to be zach i even had people tell me like don't try and be zach you're not him like you need to figure out what works for you man well i didn't know what that looked like (laughs) i I didn't know how to find out find out that information you know yeah um and so i just forged ahead um, now life and the circumstances and, uh, you know, the environment that we were in and Marja had a, a very painful and strict way of, of educating me, um, and did so for many years thereafter. Um, but nowadays, man, not so much. I'm in a very different place in my life. Um, I, I don't drink anymore, which is good. Um, so I've got a clear head. I've done a lot of study, a lot of personal development. That's really what my life centers around now. Mm -hmm. and self-reflection and once i realized that yes i can i can dip into the past when you know i think that i can find an answer to an issue or it's good to to read to study to learn from people that are in the past but if you stay in the past then you miss what's going on in front of you and you will not get to where you need to be in the future right you know um so once i came to that realization that was just a little bit more of a nudge in the right direction. Was that part of that sort of reflection time that we talked about earlier? Uh, yes, it was actually, because believe it or not, um, you know, I, I, I had built up walls with the guys in the squad and, you know, those, we never really confronted those things. We didn't just like get back from Afghanistan and, and hang out and all have it out so that we could stay best buddies and stuff. We just kind of we all went our separate ways and we all did our own thing. And I didn't speak to a member of the squad until I was in two five. So that was 2015. Uh, by the time that I actually spoke to someone that I had gone to war with. Um, and yeah, that's, that's when that really started. Um, and two five was cause when I had made the decision to get out, you know, at that point it was, my first thought was, and, and what, even while I was making that decision, it was, mm-hmm. well, looking back a little bit on everything that I had accomplished, everything I had been a part of, how much I had grown, where I had still failed, the things that I knew I would have to deal with and confront outside of this environment, which was all I knew of, of my adult life, you know? Yeah. And that's what kind of started the ball rolling on that. But that's where it started, man. Yep. At 2-5. Was it hard to to go back and talk to your squad mates? Um, 
yeah, it was. Um, it started out with one, started out with uh, my second team leader at the time. And uh, that was more of an, an hour long sort of like anger fueled conversation where we both just kind of like, you know, we, we took the biggest things that we had been building up and resenting over those years. And we just kind of threw them out there, you know, just, just get it out there. Right. And, uh, but with that came a lot of like really brutal honesty, which is something that, you know, the infantry is, is like, it's littered in everything that we do. You know, like we don't hold back from telling somebody when they're messed up or hearing it either. It's right. just, it's all meant to build the team. Right. Yeah. So that's how that conversation went. And it actually opened the door for us to talk more. And, you know, I, I still keep in touch with them to this day. Um, but yeah, man, actually being able to, to hear him say that, you know, like, yes, you made some mistakes, Stu, but at the same time, like, we all kind of thought that you weren't really going to live up to Zach because, yeah, I mean, it makes perfect sense, man. You know, like you're used to the best and then you get this dude, like, nobody's going to look at you and be like, oh man, he's going to be just fine. Right. Yeah. It's like, we we really didn't give you too much of a chance, you know? Mm -hmm. So that didn't excuse what I did or my part of it, but at least I had that knowledge of being like, okay, like, all right, this is more of a human issue. And I probably could have gone about these things a whole lot better if I had just spoken to people differently or tried to understand them and how they think and how they feel. Right. That communication aspect. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, man. That conversation opened the door for me to actually get answers. Do you feel like you were able to grow from that? Do you feel like you were able to like closure in in a sense? And then, you know, it's hard to hear that self-critical, you know, hear it from someone else or think of it yourself, you know, to go through that change, go through that door. And then out the other side, say, cool, I can take responsibility for my part, you know, and, and move on from this. Like growth. Um, closure, I don't think closure so much. It's just some of the things that I was really that I was really scared of, you know, mm-hmm. uh those got put to rest, you know, because part of me thought that I was like the worst leader to ever ever wear a uniform. You know, like I did ev- absolutely everything possibly wrong. And Zach had built this great machine and I had just torn it all down, you know. And then after after that conversation, that wasn't the case. You know, mm-hmm. yes, I made my mistakes, but that was nowhere near the reality of the situation. I was very pessimistic about it, yeah. you know, um, so it allowed me to move forward um, under that assumption. As far as closure goes, though, I don't really think that closure is ever really a part of it, man. I think it's more of just there's a process of reflection, uh, which leads to confronting things that are very uncomfortable and then after that, it's taking those lessons and those realizations and moving forward and integrating them into your life. It's not so much like closing the closing the door on one part of your life as it is, okay, I'm kind of just getting all of these things in order from the past. And now that kind of facilitates a little bit more of a smoother move through the rest of life. I find this interesting because, again, bringing up Sif Mill Divide, what do you think is the difficult conversation that 
veterans and, and civilians need to have to get to that place that you were just talking about? Ooh, that's the million dollar question, man. Um, I guess the first thing would be like, if we're going to open the door for those conversations, then there's some things that have just, that have got to go, that have got to be cut out some mentalities that need to be changed on both sides. You know, uh, the first thing is that this, this divide that you're talking about is not a, it should never be a, a pointing fingers blame game. Like that's not productive at all in any way. If you think about it, man, it's just natural. You know, like when you have two competing cultures that exist in close proximity over time, there's going to be a gap. And then if it goes on for long enough, that may even lead to conflict, which could even turn violent. You know, I mean, look at look at what happened with, you know, us and the Indians, you know, all those years ago. It was a cultural war, man. They were different. We were different. We didn't like each other. We were close to each other. There you go. Yeah. It was inevitable, mm -hmm. you know? Um, so at this point, man, um, I think that on our part, okay, uh, it's very easy for us to be judgmental. Very easy of us to be judgmental. And we have this, this vet bro culture that I call it um, where, you know, there's a good number of us that think that it's acceptable to, you know, live off of VA benefits for the rest of our lives and not work and pound our chest and, and rest on our laurels for everything that we did in the past and to expect an amount of respect for what we did, mm -hmm. you know, being stuck in the past and living that way with that type of mentality is detrimental to the entire situation. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, what we should be doing is striving to produce more men like John Glenn, you know, um, that dude's got an immaculate story. And there's plenty of other veterans too, that have come home and, and gone on to do wonderful things with their lives, you know, mm -hmm. um, and think about all the advantages that we have at our disposal to help us with that. Mm -hmm. You know, you need help in the healing process and telling your story, like, here we go. Prime example, get it out there. No other generation has had the platforms that we have in order to make this happen. Right. You want to write a book? Guess what? You can self-publish. You don't have to spend thousands and thousands of dollars and jump through hoops to get it done. You can do it all yourself, man. Yeah. You know? And I know from experience, like it helps, you know, now let's take that specific instance and let's flip it on the other side. Um, I do think that there is a check in the box mentality when it comes to the term, thank you for your service mm -hmm. that most of us just, we loathe, man. We can't stand hearing it. A lot of us. Um, and I think that situations like this where, you know, veterans will tell their stories and stuff is it's more common now than it ever has been in our country. And because of that, it becomes easy for some civilians to view these types of interactions as something that needs to be said, but doesn't necessarily need to be heard. And that's a problem. Okay. Because the experiences that we have, the hardship and the struggle that we've been through, the development that's taken place with us, that can be applied to everyday life to enhance our experience as Americans, mm -hmm. you know? Um, so that mentality, the thank you for your service mentality and, and the vet bro mentality, those have got to go uh, first and foremost. And, you know, I think that that will go a long way in 
opening lines of communication. Um, another you're thing, saying, sorry to interrupt. Uh, um, you're saying the thank you for your service mentality as in like, all I have to do is say that and we're good. Yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So let's, let's, yeah, I didn't really do that one justice, man. You're exactly right. Um, but maybe if that's how you want to start something fine, that's great. You know? Um, but how about going a little bit deeper, asking them what their MOS was, ask them if they deployed, ask them what, what was the best memory that they have about mm -hmm. service or, you know, Hey, is there anything that, that you wish that we knew, you know, mm -hmm. or engaging them on a more, a more personal level or a more detailed level, you know, like, Hey, like, I'm curious about this. Can you tell me about it? You know, I, I never deployed anywhere. What's it like to be overseas? You know, what are the people like, what are the cultures like, mm -hmm. um, what did you learn from your service? Is it really different from how we live out here? Mm -hmm. You know, critical be, question. Be curious. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't, it, it, you don't have to try and fix the whole thing in one conversation. It's not going to happen. It's unrealistic. No, I've been know? doing the podcast for three years and have, you know, it's like, I feel like I, I bridge the divide in the podcast and the people that listen to the podcast can get more of an understanding of like, oh, this is how we want to engage with veterans as civilians. This is what we want. As you know, I try to model that. And, you know, if, if, if anything, if anything, you're listening to this podcast and you're taking anything away from this conversation, it's I'm hearing how, to, to talk to a veteran. I'm trying to model that idea of like, we didn't just pop on and say, hey, here's Stu. He's going to tell us about his service. Great. Thanks, Stu. We'll see you later. Um, right. And we're getting much more nitty gritty than I think anybody really probably needs to, or maybe even wants to in 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 anywhere with, with the veteran. But if they have a veteran in their family or something that they, they were like, I've never really talked with them because I didn't know how, I didn't know what to say. It's like the way that I have learned from, and Honestly, if you saw how I was when I first started with Veterans Breakfast Club and just how I talked with the veteran, how I asked questions, what I asked questions about, what questions I, I actually asked to now, it's a it's night and day. But I've had that experience. I've had that ability and that platform to be able to say, I can sit down with a veteran and really dive into some stuff. You know, um, I love the questions that you proposed of just like, hey, ask about my MOS, because that might open up another rabbit hole. And you may not understand anything about what you say. I, yeah, what's your MOS? Uh, you know, I, I was an uh, airplane mechanic. Okay, what, what does that mean? You know, you can ask that question, because it's not, it's not outside of the realm of, you know, like, decorum to be like, hey, what was your job? What'd you do? Absolutely. And, you know, on the flip side of that, too, how how awesome do we think it would be instead of the veteran being like, oh, this conversation's all about me. I just have to stand here and ask questions. Mm -hmm. How awesome would it be if we were like, oh, man, I mean, that's pretty cool that you're actually showing an interest. What can I learn from you? Mm -hmm. And we started asking questions about whatever industry they're in. Who knows? Maybe that leads to a better job, better benefit for a family or something like that. Right. 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 Even just an awesome friendship that enhances life, mm -hmm. you know, um, instead of looking at it from a me standpoint, more of a we standpoint, mm -hmm. you know. Totally. Um, part of me wanted to ask if what questions you felt veterans and just like just bouncing off what you just said, what veterans need to ask civilians and if it's what do you need to know about my experience to help this divide? Is it um, 
how can what I've learned in the military help this community? You know, it, it, that's that's sort of like my my thought process of where where do, where does a veteran go to help the divide as much as civilians just being curious? Okay, so <clears throat> let's keep those three in mind because they're all three really good points, right? As far as um, uh, as far as where we can go to help this situation, the first is actually being willing to talk to it, talk about it. The second is approaching those conversations with um, actually wanting to learn something instead of just waiting for your turn to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, for me, what that kind of looks like is I would want to know how that person saw the war in Afghanistan. I would want to know how they viewed us as the fighting force. If that was any different than our politicians, like if they viewed us as all one entity or if they Mm -hmm. viewed like, okay, Washington's doing this over here, but these guys are dealing with something different on the ground. You know, I would want to know if there's a connect or a disconnect there. Um, And I would want to know, really, I, I would want to know in some way, I'm not exactly sure how to ask this. What is our legacy as fighting men? What is our generation's legacy to this country? Mm -hmm. That's really the main thing for me, you know, and that's, that's one of the things that I talk about on the podcast all the time, you know, and, and it's one of the primary motivators for me writing my book as well is to put my view of those things out there. It doesn't mean that everybody else has to accept it, but I don't think that anybody is really talking about those things. They're not talking about the fact that the cultures are different. They're not talking about what this war has meant to our country and what it should mean moving forward. Because if we don't decide those things, somebody else is going to decide it for us. And that information is going to be pushed through our public school system, and our kids are going to come home and regurgitate it to us one day. I don't want that happening. That's my responsibility to educate my kids on these things, especially since I, I, I actually fought in the war. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, so that's the main thing. I'd be happy to take a crack at some of those. Let's do it. What was the first one? I can try. (laughs) Um, uh, yeah. What was the first one? Uh, so how did how did you view the war in Afghanistan? Necessary, at the start. Mm -hmm. Um, did that change as it went on? I would say as a civilian, I suffered from exactly what I think many, many other civilians suffered from, and that was complacency. It was something that I always knew was happening. Mm-hmm. It was something that I knew people were dying. I would see it in the headlines. I would read about it periodically, but it wasn't always in the forefront, and it wasn't always something that was the main topic of of what I was looking for each day in the last 20 years. After 9-11, um, and I've talked about this before on the podcast, I didn't enlist because I was straight up out of fear, just straight up out of fear of just like, I I don't think I could kill somebody if I was, if I had to, I'm not sure. I, at that time, I couldn't answer that question, but I, I knew that I I was certainly just not, I was not okay with the idea of, of dying. Mm-hmm. So I didn't enlist. Um, and uh and I regret that in some ways. And I regret it more so nowadays with the Veterans Breakfast Club after the last three years of talking with veterans, because now I'm 41 and I'm like, okay, well, hey, the Air Force raised their enlistment age to 41. Maybe there's still a chance for me. But I talk with <laughs> veterans and and this is just me being honest. I talk with veterans and I'm like, man, the, the passion and the experiences that, that you all had is something that I kind of envy. 
that I think back to myself at 18 or 19 and that 9-11 happens and I'm like, holy hell. And uh, that was the moment that was the moment that our country needed needed us the most. And that wasn't something that I was brought up with. I wasn't brought up through a military family. I remember recruiters calling me in high school and I was like, man, I don't, I don't want to go get shot at. That doesn't sound appealing to me. <laughs> so cool. Um, but uh, you look at World War II, you look at Vietnam, you look at the war that each one of these generations had, you know, that was their war. This was our war, Iraq and Afghanistan. And I regret now at this point, looking back at my 18, 19 year old self and saying like, I wish I would have had the idea if I wasn't ready for infantry or tip of the spear or combat that I could have said, or I, somebody could have said to me at that time, and I'm not going to remove the blame from myself, but my only thought of is if I enlist, I'm going to, going to combat. Yeah. When there was many, many, many other options to serve your country, to, to serve and be present and help in some way. And whether that is, you know, as a medic or whatever the case may be, there were ways to to enlist and and, and help the cause. Now, yeah. getting back to your question, what did I think of Afghanistan? I think that at the beginning it was gung ho. Yes, we were attacked. Get them, you know, run them out, find them. You know, I was a, a I was not a history buff, but I I I always read things about World War II, and it was like this is this is our Pearl Harbor. We need to respond to this. Mm -hmm. And I was always proud of it because to me, it seemed like from what at least I understood of Afghanistan at any given time over the last two decades, it was what we are doing there is, is helping Afghanistan. And like I mentioned earlier, like the Taliban took back over and women are going to suffer. So I felt like that was something a, a humanitarian thing, but I never once really followed like what the politicians were saying about it. That's nothing I never really hung my hat on. Like, oh, any which president was saying this about it. Now, if they said we require a surge right now because things are are dire on the ground and we need more men there. Okay, I understand that. That makes sense to me. Um, it wasn't until I really started talking with post 9-11 vets, such as yourself, that it's like that I really got an idea of how things were over there. That the what we were being sort of fed and how it was boots on the ground were quite different and that we probably weren't in a great position to be able to nation build over there we weren't going to install a democracy that was just going to be like great cool you know they have a democracy now and everybody's happy and we got a mcdonald's <laughs> you know it, it you know you're dealing with such a different culture tribal culture and the more that you research, the more you understand, the more you read about it, the more you're like, how the hell were we going to make anything work that works for us over here in the United States? You know, so and then as it got to the end and the and uh, the fall of Kabul and just the S show that that was, I remember feeling like, God, how did it get this to this? And understanding and talking with Vietnam veterans a lot over the last several years and listening to them tell me about their experience with the fall of Saigon. And that blew my mind because it was like, I can't imagine how you felt, how they felt fighting for what they fought for because it wasn't, 
a lot of them have talked to me about like, I wasn't over there fighting for the flag. I was over there fighting for the guy next to me because we're going, we're going to get home. That's what we're doing, you know? And despite all that, you just, you, you push on. And then something like this happens, you know, in either case of Vietnam or, or Afghanistan. And you're just like, you just, you, you feel destroyed. I think yeah. I felt maybe more destroyed than the average civilian when I saw the planes taken off from Kabul and all the, all of the people at those gates and those, the, the, the servicemen and women that were there trying to like, just make order out of chaos. And you just, you just couldn't do anything but feel terrible for yeah. what was going on. Mm hmm that that that's a long answer in a nutshell to say like 20 years is a long time to 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 keep something like the afghanistan war at, at the forefront of your mind as a civilian but i do know and i recall over the course of those 20 years dipping into it and then usually it would be like oh 13 more people were killed or oh hey we've had a month where no one died that's great or oh hey a suicide bomber did this you mm -hmm. know in the southern part of afghanistan that's terrible you know, but it was, and there was eventually a point where I think I was always, where I started to think like, why are we still there? What are we doing? Like, yeah. what is the actual point of what we're doing? And why can't anybody figure it out? Well, first off, I'll, I'll, I'll say this, man. It, I think if, if, uh, if you were in Washington, this probably would have ended a little bit better than it did. Or at least if, if people in Washington had that mentality of, of understanding that, you know, Cultural change is not something you accomplish over the course of a decade or two. Cultural change, especially when you're talking about one that's as old as Afghanistan, uh, you're looking at like 50 to 100 years. Um, you know, so that was the first thing. The second thing is, is uh, it, it's difficult for people to understand why we're over there doing something when the people calling the shots don't know why we're over there doing something. Uh, there was no clearly defined political objectives for our generals to formulate a strategy around and carry out. So that filtered down to the operational level and then down to the tactical level where we just didn't care about any of that. We were fighting a war. Mm -hmm. um, so that level of disconnect, uh, it was huge, you know, and, um, you know, they. Um, so that's the first thing the, the the second thing that you you said that really stuck out to me is. You wish that somebody had said, you know, or guided you to like a different MOS or something like that. Like, hey, man, you don't want to go to war. Fine. You know, here's admin or here's a cook or something, any number of jobs that they have. All right. The funny thing is, and a lot of people don't realize, um, but for every one of us, every one grunt that goes downrange to fight, there's five support personnel that have to be pulling other tasks in order to make that happen. OK, so if you break down the percentages. Um, you think about roughly one percent of a nation of what are we at now, three hundred and thirty something million, something like right. that. Yeah, it's le less than one half of one percent actually serve. Uh, right. Um, or well, so at the time from like 2001 to 2013, you had 13 to 15 percent of that one percent. Okay. okay. That were in uniform that constituted the combat arms community. So artillery, tanks, um, infantry, special operations, you name it, anything that was combat arms, motor transport, all that kind of stuff, combat logistics, et cetera. Mm -hmm. All right. And now you take that, that 13 to 
and you break it down even further to just infantry and special operations, and it's like 0.02%. Yeah. That 0.02% had an 89% higher combat casualty rating than all other occupational specialties combined mm-hmm. during the war in Afghanistan. Now, to be credit, those stats are not mine. I read to get those. A wonderful book called uh, Scales on War. I'd highly recommend that people read it. It's very eye-opening. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But um, that just goes to show you that a lot of people don't realize that. You know, that's one of those things that lessens that divide a little bit. You know, most people just say, oh, a uniform, they must fight. That's right. not necessarily the case, you know. Um, and that kind of alienates us a little bit. You know, we're like, well, if that's like, so this dude types on a computer all day and he still gets the same amount of recognition that we do. Like that doesn't really make any sense. Not that we did it for recognition, but it's not so much about, Hey, Stu Blackwell's awesome. He did this. It's more about how did we contribute to the understanding of our country? Mm-hmm. Do they really understand what's going on here and why, if that's the mentality, the general mentality Well, that kind of sucks because guess what? You pay taxes just like I do. Mm -hmm. If World War III kicks off 20 years from now, your kid could be standing on the line next to my kid. Why would we not all have some sort of of interest in this? It's ours. Literally, it's ours. You know? So to see that it's not maybe as high on the priorities list for some Mm -hmm. as it is for us, that can kind of be a little bit of a, a buffer, you know? Right. What was your second question? Our legacy. What is our legacy? What is our generation's legacy to our country? Sacrifice. Service. In what ways? <clears throat> well, if you, like we just mentioned, less than one half of 1% serve. So I think part of the legacy is, you know, you talked about guys who were deployed five, six, 10 times, you know, um, the level of sacrifice that that is, mm-hmm. um, you know, because it's, it's, it's not like world war two era when you knew everybody, you knew someone next door, everybody served every, it was, you know, but we were in a world war. So obviously, you know, a lot more people and yeah. l- luckily it's not the Vietnam era where it was so anti-war that those guys coming home, it, it's 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 beyond me how bad they were treated mm-hmm. that pendulum has swung the other way and thankfully you guys can come home and get a thank you for your service and yes that doesn't extend to the hey take it a step further um but at, at least there's not spitting and you know baby killing and all I, that's all that nonsense yeah so people not burning things on my lawn and calling me a rapist and a baby killer and stuff. Yeah. We can, we got a lot better. Yeah. Uh, I know. And so it, it, it's tough for me to answer that question as a civilian. In fact, just to, to say what your legacy is, because like, I, I feel like I'm not in the, in a, I'm not, I, I feel like I'm not responsible for that answer. Like that is, I feel like that's the veteran saying like our legacy is that of sacrifice of service of we did our country proud you know, um, if I try to answer it as a civilian, I would I would be proud of the men and women who have served over the last 20 years um, because of those things, because of the sacrifices, because of the just miscommunications from top to bottom in the military and between that and government and how much you had to deal with on the ground. And 
the split, you know, being in Afghanistan or being in Iraq and just how different those two theaters of war were and some people who are deployed to one and then deployed to the other. And um, I would say if in if I'm still doing this with VBC in 20 years and there are more post 9-11 vets who are are willing to come out, tell their story like like you are, um, I would I would hope that they would come out and say that their experience in the military was just like, interestingly, just like how our Vietnam vets say, and that it was maybe a small percentage of the amount of time in their life, but it's such a huge percentage of who they are and that they are proud of that. And they would do it again in a heartbeat. Um, because, because I feel like any of the veterans that I interact with, I'm proud to know. I, I am intrigued by their story. I'm curious for their story. I want to know what they went through because I learn, I learn a lot from that. Yeah. Again, I don't know if that answers your question. I think that's such a hard one to answer. It is, you know, and it's one that, uh, but I think it's one that's thought provoking. And mm -hmm. I think that's really one of the most important parts about it. You can't just throw out a quick answer with that one. You have to dig a little, you know, um, and it's, I think it's one of those things, man, to where, you know, you mentioned that, that the onus of that kind of being a little bit more on us and I'm not, I'm not really the onus, the responsibility. Yes, you're absolutely right. But having the ability to disseminate that enough to where it actually affects the public perception, that is a challenge unto itself because we compete with politicians. We compete with Hollywood um, we compete okay. with, you know, top military officials and stuff, mm -hmm. and all of them have other aims. Um, and, it, you know, um, the generals may be a category unto themselves, but I mean, why the hell we're still listening to politicians in Hollywood about anything relating to war is just completely beyond me. Right. You know, and you started to put this together a little earlier, too. You know, you looked at Vietnam and you looked at how kind of similar it was between Saigon and Kabul. Right. Well, take it one step back you know look at korea you know we drove the chinese all the way north of the yalu and then they were like hey we want you guys to stop and set up a defensive perimeter and then for the next year it was just senseless casualties right yeah anytime that the political class gets involved with wartime decisions bad shit happens it never works out look at the battle of fallujah we had to fight that one twice because they couldn't get their mind together mm -hmm. right it just it keeps happening so how many times are we going to beat our head against that brick wall before we realize we shouldn't be listening to these people when it comes to that, right? And that goes to uh, the point that you and I made sort of offline uh, before doing the recording of just having more veterans serving in Congress and just having that voice there at least. Yeah. That's maybe even, and maybe even the bigger question of if there was mandatory service and everybody from politicians down top to bottom everybody had to send their kid to boot camp and everybody had to serve for two years, whatever case may be, suddenly everybody has skin in the game. Suddenly everybody understands the military. It's a part of our culture. It's a part of our society. I feel like that, that would probably cause a lot of dissent, mm -hmm. but I feel like that military civilian divide would be a lot smaller. It, it would. Yes. And you know, that's, that's an interesting point that a lot of people bring up from time to time. And I think that, I mean, is it doable? Yes. Is it the smartest idea? No. But if it was done, let's just say theoretically, if it was done, I would specifically 
that I would separate the infantry and the special operations community. Because when you have a mass injection like that into any organization, typically, like you're going to have to go down to the lowest common denominator. So the standards will become more lax. It will become easier. All right. And a softer military is a military that's, you know, just gets wiped out on the battlefield. All right. So um, I would say that the infantry and the special operations community would need to be separated from that. And there there should be a, a rigorous, very critical selection process put in place for those two communities mm-hmm. uh, held away from the rest. Um, That's fair. You know, a smaller uh, or even equivalent size force to what we have now, but much more effective and carefully selected um, would be much better, you know? Um, and, and it was the same thing when we saw... Um, them open all the uh, all the occupational specialties to females when they removed the exclusionary rule. That was one reason why a lot of guys like me got out. You know, that was the straw that broke the camel's back. And that's what we were really worried about. Like the standards would have to change. Like they did a study on it in, you know, between Quantico and Camp Lejeune and they had the data. Like mixed gender units, they didn't shoot as well. They didn't move as well. They were more prone to injury. And this was all in controlled training environments. What do we think combat's going to be like, really? Mm-hmm. And some of it was only 1%. But that's like, if it's 1%, we're talking about somebody's life here. Isn't that enough? Isn't that enough to say, hey, we, pro- we probably shouldn't do this. Mm-hmm. But again, like, it's not the politician's son or daughter that's going to be out there. What does it matter to them? They wanted votes for an election. So, yeah. But, um, Enough of my political tirade. Let's let's get back to what really matters here, man. Um, yeah, I think that you I think that you raise a really good point about you know the civil military divide, and I don't think that it's it's necessarily dire. I would say that on the note of, of well, really on our side of it, you know, something that we can definitely do better is is show people, you know, like it's by our example, mm-hmm. you know, leadership by example what are we doing in our communities are we involved you know is every time we walk into you know to drop our kids off at taekwondo or cheerleading or or when we go to a local restaurant or something like do people know who you are you know like do you present a stable confident disciplined happy individual are you living your life properly you know or are you the guy that's got whiskey on his breath and you know, where's the the hat that says I fought in this war and demands a discount when you go out to eat? Right. Well, that's entirely up to us, how we present ourselves and how you present yourself attracts like-minded people. There's a magnetism involved here. All right. right. Yeah. So we can't again pointing the finger is is not what it's about. But when you when you reflect on yourself and when you focus on yourself and you develop yourself that goes a long way in opening lines of communication with people. It really does. And that's something that I think that we as a veteran generation need to do better at. And I think that it will go a long way in determining what our legacy is. You know, think about how Vietnam vets came home. Like you were talking about a lot of those guys didn't start talking about their experiences until what 20, 30 years after. Yeah. And now a lot of them are, a lot of them are in the ground, man. How sad is that, that we missed out on learning from that, you know? So let's not go down the same road. Let's, you know, we should be living in a manner to where 
people should want to learn a little bit about that and where we can learn from them. Um, but if we're not, if we're not living right, if we're not, if we're not setting that example and we don't have those standards, then we're just going to be remembered as the nation that went to war and came home riddled with PTSD. Because I guarantee you, PTSD is a more common association with our war than any other word that you could throw out there. More common than sacrifice, more common than anything else. PTSD is the first thing that comes to a lot of people's minds, and it's bullshit, frankly. frankly. No, I appreciate the honesty. And that it's not something that even entered my mind as much as I've heard it. When you asked me what our legacy is going to be, it wasn't mental health struggle. You know, well, I, you know, and you don't, you do hear a lot about, you know, the number of suicides or, or PTSD or, you know, yes, yes, veterans uh, do deal with some level of uh, trauma from the things that they've experienced. And yes. maybe it's because of the ex- experiences I've had through VBC in helping to promote uh, avenues to help veterans who are experiencing trauma to deal with that. Yeah. But I think perseverance also pops into my mind for your generation because not only do you come home and most of the headlines read PTSD or mental trauma or um, traumatic brain injury or things like that, um, you had to persevere over the ideas of what everyone had about Iraq and Afghanistan, for one, what we're being shown about how you know how many veterans commit suicide, or the mental stigma of PTSD or traumatic brain injury. Yeah, it it it, it creates this this narrative, even if it's not directly saying it. It right. creates this narrative that that's all there is. Yeah. That if you sign up and you go like. This is what you have waiting on you. Mm-hmm. PTSD, bad dreams, possibly suicide. This is it. And that's not the case at all. You know, like the, the deep life-altering changes that took place in this, this culture that, that are characterized by struggle and, and shared hardship and adversity and challenge and personal development. Mm-hmm. You, know, you don't get that anywhere else. And you learn things about other people, not just about yourself, but you learn things about other people as well. You get to see people in a completely different light. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that I miss about it most. But that doesn't mean that we can't have that here on the outside. You know, maybe put down our phones and, you know, go have a glass of tea with with your neighbor after work one day. Most people don't have neighbors, man. No. And I want to take that uh, as something that civilians need to do as well, because you mentioned this idea of like, how are you presenting yourself as a veteran? And and what is that in the community? Because honestly, like, there are a lot more civilians than there are veterans. And we're not very good at presenting ourselves in public. <laughs> well, it, it, a shared identity and a shared mentality is, is it's a challenge that I don't think has been as prevalent in previous generations. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, think about it, man. If if a grown adult wants to never leave their home, they can. They can have food brought to them. They can have anybody come fix their house when they need to. Yeah. Um, 
like barring a major life emergency, literally someone can never leave their home. Yeah. Right. That wasn't the case before, you know, the nineties when the internet came around and all that, right? Like people right. had to get things. Yeah. Right. Um, so there, there's a level of disconnect there. And I think that one of the, one of the traps that we kind of fell into, um, at least me anyway, that I fell into, I expected this, this, this level of connectivity amongst Americans, you know, that, um, that shared consciousness, you know, to back the war effort, yeah. um, that I saw in movies about world war two and stuff like that. Like I was raised in a very, a, a very traditional home that was very respectful of the sacrifices of veterans, even though my father never served, he instilled that pride in us and he exemplified it. Mm -hmm. um, so that's what I expected. And when that didn't really pan out, I was kind of a little pissed about it. Yeah. And why doesn't it, it, it doesn't make any sense to me on a personal level when I think about why I had that reaction, because I didn't join for recognition. Mm -hmm. Why did it bother me so much? I don't know. Um, I've gotten to the point where I really don't ponder that part of it anymore. Um, but establishing some form of relationship has got to happen, you know, in person, preferably. Yeah. Do you think part of it was uh, your frustration with that? Do you think part of it was you have somebody as close to you that you look up to like Zach that's, that's killed in Afghanistan and whoever is at the grocery store just they didn't know the a lick about him no i think that i think that we're where really where it really got me was um like after we came home and it people started talking about changes that were going to happen you know mm -hmm. like that's when it really started to get me all right so like hey you guys don't want to pay attention to the war effort like whatever that's your right i mean mm -hmm. it is what it is it I know why I'm over here. I know why I'm doing what I'm doing. Um, but now when some of those same people or those or the politicians or whatnot start kind of pointing the finger, and they're like, yeah, we want you to repeal don't ask, don't tell. We want you to uh, start giving up some of your live fire training so that you can attend an eight hour sexual assault present prevention brief. And we want you to open all the specialties to women. And we want you to make all these changes because it makes us feel good. You know, that's when that's when it really started to get at me. You know, um, you don't have any skin in the game. You're not paying the price for anything. You shouldn't have any right to dictate any of this. That's the way I see it. I don't care if you're an elected official or not. Um, you know, and, and eventually I had to come to terms with the fact that um, while that was going to happen, it was completely and totally beyond my control. Uh, it's not like, again, we talked about cultural change. Like, it's not like they were going to, you know, sign the papers and stamp the document. And then all of a sudden, everything that we had built over 20 years was just going to go away overnight. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's not how it works. You know, there's still, there's still really great things about the infantry, even though they made those changes. You know, and it's not like there was a flood of of women that came in to the infantry or, you know, a whole bunch of bad things that happened because of that. Like really not a whole lot changed at all. Yeah. You know, now 20 years from now, when it's time for the next war or 10 years from now, when it's time to the next war, now we'll see. And that's what really gets a lot of us. Um, but it was that, 
it was that mentality of we don't have any skin in the game, but we're still going to dictate how you should be. You know, that culture is something that we all built. Like we shared in that, yeah. you know, it's product of the war that we fought. All of us poured sweat and blood into it. We, we took casualties because of it. Um, some of our best friends were killed because of it. So right. what right does anyone have to dictate that to us without sharing in the danger and hardship of it? None. True. And that's what drove a lot of us out. Do you think that part of the divide from the uh, point of view of the veterans is resentment of the civilians who didn't serve? Mm, I don't I don't really know, man. Um, it could be. Um, again, mine only is and i can really only speak for myself man like mine is only confined to the specific groups of people that that interfered in things that they didn't understand um beyond that no not so much i mean it's a volunteer force for a reason and if you think about the consequences of it um and after being in that environment i didn't want every american out there with us like no offense um but i'm pretty sure that you know um pretty sure that a professional football team doesn't want me out on the field with them yeah it's not gonna work out too well they're gonna depend on me and i'm not gonna be able to hack it it is what it is you know um so nah man that's i don't think it's really resentment and if it is i would be interested to hear their thoughts on why you know um like you said we weren't spit on and called names or anything when we got home for the most part i mean you have your westboro baptist crazies out there but i mean Nobody likes them, you know, <laughs> so whatever. Um, yeah, I, I don't think that's too big of a part of it. And I don't think that the, the, I do not think that the average American and the vast majority of the civilian populace deserves that either. Mm-hmm. Absolutely not. No, it's just a product of the world still understanding the disconnect that technological advancement has had. Mm-hmm. It takes just as long to understand major changes like this that it does to change a culture. You know, I don't think we'll fully understand what the internet has done and the full impact of it for another decade or so when we look back on how different it really is. That's how you measure those things in 30 to 50 years. But that's just me, man. Um, Well, we mentioned at the beginning that you uh, have a podcast, the Warrior Legacy Podcast. Um, Where can people find it? What is, uh, you know, my shtick with Scuttlebutt, understanding military culture from a civilian perspective. Uh, What uh, is the themes of Warrior Legacy Podcast? So it's available on um, Anchor, uh, Spotify, and Apple as of right now. And the Warrior Legacy Podcast is where I talk about um, not just my own experiences, uh, but also infantry culture in general you know like i actually define that i give my examination of it my definition of it i list the values that we hold dear and how that affects decision making and how that culture exists separately from larger american society or at least it did during my time of service Mm -hmm. okay uh during the global war on terror now the goal of it is to to take a lot of those experiences and those values and talk about not just, hey, this is an example of that from my time, but this is how I've incorporated that into my life now. You can do the same thing. Like, use my experience to enrich your life. 
Yeah. You know, sure. find some way that you can benefit from it. Otherwise, what's the point of having it? Mm-hmm. You know, so it, it's it's that onus of what we were talking about of how, you know, how do we live our lives? How do we present ourselves to the outside world? You know, what kind of magnetism do we have? Is it positive or is it negative? Yeah. And it's a goal to shoulder and take the onus of my portion of that responsibility. Very cool. To our listeners, I hope you, I will put the links here in the description uh, for you to connect and and view or listen to. Is there a video element to Warrior Legacy or is it all audio? Uh, the It's all audio other than the the work that I've done with, uh, you know, with Brad Washabaugh and now with you. Awesome. Well, I hope that our audience looks up Warrior Legacy podcast. Um, Stu, I want to thank you just for this time. I know we, we can't solve military-civilian divide in an hour and a half. <laughs> But we can give examples. And like I said, maybe we can guide people a bit when they hear the conversation about these are ways that we can all do it. Um, so I want to thank you for your time and your honesty and just, you know, the truth and and for your story. Yeah, absolutely, man. It's been great. And, you know, I'm I'm always looking for opportunities like this, you know, mm-hmm. always. Um, you know, so you, if, if you or if anybody listened or anything, if you guys, you know, you, you all want to connect or something like that, if you need a public speaker for an event, mm-hmm. find me, you know. Hit me up on the uh, on the social media and stuff like that, or, or you know, email Sean here. We can you find can. a way to connect and make it happen. You know, um, but it's been it's been great talking to you, man. Um, and thank you for the opportunity. Anytime that that I get a chance to you know to work with yourself or anyone from your organization, it's always been a pleasure. Well, thank you for that. Uh, I know we pride ourselves on it at, at VBC. You know, we always uh, want to be able to provide platforms for veterans to tell tell their stories. Uh, to help share, uh, to connect, educate, heal, and inspire. That's part of our mission. Um, to our audience, you know, please like, share, subscribe, ring the bell on YouTube. You're the first to know that we, whenever we release new episodes. Uh, and just like Stu said, you can reach out to me, Sean, S-H-A-U-N at veteransbreakfastclub.org if you want to connect with Stu or if you have a, you know, an idea for a future scuttlebutt, um, you know, you're interested in a piece of military culture that you don't know about, I'm happy to reach out, find somebody. We can have them on as a guest and break it down. Um, happy to do that. Uh, thank you again, Stu, for joining me on the podcast. I hope to see you on a future episode, uh, or maybe I'll come over and join you over on Warrior Legacy. That might be kind of fun, too. <laughs> um, but have a good day, and thank you all for, for listening. Thank you for watching this episode of The Scuttlebutt. I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Tobacco Free Adagio Health. Uh, Tobacco Free Adagio Health has been supporting the podcast for quite some time now. We've been so pleased to be uh, supported by them. They are dedicated to reducing and preventing tobacco use and getting the word out about the hazards of smoking and secondhand smoke. They're all about health, so they want people to quit. Uh, They have classes, nicotine replacement therapy, and a popular quit line, 1-800-QUIT-NOW. They also educate people, children especially, about tobacco use from cigarettes, cigars, pipes, chew, snuff, and other nicotine products like vaping. And finally, Tobacco Free Adagio Health advocates for public and private policies that ensure healthy places to live, work, and play. You can learn all about what Tobacco Free Adagio Health offers at tobaccofree.adagiohealth.org. Or you can check out the two Scuttlebutt episodes that featured Tobacco Free Adagio Health. We had a wonderful representative come on to the podcast, talk to us about all the classes and therapies that they offer. Uh, It was two wonderful conversations, so I definitely direct you to both of those if you want more information. Or just call their free quit line, 1-800-QUIT-NOW. Thank you again, Tobacco Free Adagio Health, for your support.